from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Glenn Darling, a Baha'i from Canada who has been in the broadcasting business for many years and is now retired. He's recently used his wonderful voice to recite Baha'u'llah's work, The Tablet of Carmel, which you can find on YouTube. I started the interview by asking Glenn where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? That's a really hard question to answer to start with because my father was in the military. We moved 14 times in 12 years. I've lived in all kinds of military camps all over Canada. Uh, so I, I, the one that I would call home the most probably would be Shiloh, Manitoba, the, the military base there. But again, when you move around a lot, you don't have a chance to call anything uh, you know, home for you. What was religious life like growing up? It was interesting because you get a mix of people from different backgrounds in the military. And I was one of those kids that was very much interested in anything that had to do with the spiritual. By the time I was um, oh, nine, ten years old, my parents would let me go to various religious uh, celebrations. And I think I went everywhere from Hare Krishna bean breakfast to the uh, Chinese Freemasons and just about anything in between. Always enjoyed the fellowship and everything else like that. But I was a youngster. Even then, I would go for walks out on the, on the prairies in the cold winter nights, and I'd hear the crunch of the snow under my feet, and I'd watch my breath, and I'd look up at the stars, and I, I'd talk to God. And I felt closer to God there than I did in, in the confines of a, a church or a, a synagogue or a temple. And, that just happens to be what it was like. God was closest when I was alone by myself under the stars at night. Were your parents churchgoers? They were. My, I, I grew up in the Anglican church. My father was a choir master. My parents were both in the, the adults' choir, and I was forced into, <laughs> into the junior choir. Caused a lot of trouble, but you know. Yeah, you were a jokester growing up? Yes, exactly. Always getting myself in some kind of trouble. Or saying the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time. <laughs> what were your interests growing up? My interests growing up, believe it or not, were politics and hockey. I learned to skate before I could walk, mainly because my father had been a very good hockey player. The war had not come along, and he himself was shot several times, lost a kidney, part of his intestines, and other things, and could not pursue that. And uh, it rubbed off a little on me. I had a rink to skate on in the backyard before I could even put the skates on, so to speak. My dad told me the, the year before I got my first pair of skates that next year that's going to be yours. And it was true. I played a lot of hockey. In fact, I would uh, go to school and I'd come home at lunchtime, put my skates on. Then I'd go back out again after school and, and, and do that. A little later on, of course, when I got up in the school grades, I got interested in politics. My high school yearbook would say that my goal was to be social credit premier of the province of Manitoba. <laughs> and I ended up as a Baha'i, and we don't get involved in politics. So. <laughs> <laughs> but did you, like, run for student body officer or president or anything like that? 
I didn't do any of that sort of thing, but I did enter the speaking competitions mm-hmm. and was fortunate enough to win the high school championship three years in a row, move mm-hmm. on to the next step, which would be from the army camp in Shiloh up to Brandon, Manitoba, about 20 miles away. And every year of all of those three years, I had to go up against the girls from St. Mary's School, about 300 girls, of which they had about 60 of them every year in, the, in their final competition. And I was the first one to speak all three years, and I had to sit through 60, <laughs> and I won all three years. So it was, uh, it was interesting. Did you get into politics when you were in high school? I did. I was one of those people who really went out on a bit of a bit of a limb. I actually ran for the Social Credit Party in London, Ontario, Middlesex East. I was only 18 years old. If I'd have won, I couldn't have taken the seat because at that time you had to be 21 to do it. Yeah, I, I, I was involved. And uh, although you're in the U.S. and I am in Canada, one of the leaders of one of the political parties at that time actually took me under wing and I had some wonderful times with a gentleman by the name of Robert Thompson and also by the name of Solon Lowe. They were the leaders of the National Social Credit Party here uh, in Canada. I had an opportunity to meet people like Haile Selassie of uh, Ethiopia and, and so on. So, yes, there were good times. And why did you run for office that you couldn't uh, obtain? I guess it was just one of those things I wanted to try and do. And at that time, there wasn't anything to say that it couldn't. Mm-hmm. You can't do that now. If you're not of, of age, you, you can't run. That's all there is to it. And what was the platform for the Social Credit Party? Social credit is a system of basic economics whereby the real wealth of a nation is monetized to produce a balance between the production and the consumption for the direct benefit of everybody concerned. That's the classic description of social credit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it was sort of a left-leaning party. It was, although they called them conservative at the time. But uh, yes, if you look at it, 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 it was somewhat left-leaning. So what did you do after high school? Well, after high school, I got into the broadcasting business, and I spent 35 years there. And did you know you wanted to go into broadcasting after you finished high school? I think I did. You know, I was the DJ at the dances on Saturday night and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I moved into Winnipeg, uh, we had this little old Volkswagen, a Berlin Buick, and we set up a mobile radio station and would put our signal over top of the leading radio stations in the city of Winnipeg. And then they'd have the old, back in those days, it wasn't called the CRTC as it is here in, in Canada. It was Board of Broadcast Management in those days it was named. But they would be chasing us all over the city, trying to close us down. They couldn't figure out how we were doing it for the longest time. It was, it was because we were mobile. <laughs> so you were a pirate radio station. A pirate radio station. Yeah. So what was your first professional radio gig? First gig, I hitchhiked from... Winnipeg, well, actually Shiloh, to Simcoe, Ontario, oh, what, two or 3,000 miles away, and uh, lied about my age and got a job. So what was the gig? Uh, it, was a, you know, it was a straight announcing job at uh, CFRS in Simcoe, Ontario. So you did spot announcements or something? No, I was the DJ. You did okay. everything. You did the spot announcements, you did the DJ work, you read the news, you uh, cleaned up afterwards. And... So, Glenn, how did you run into the Baha'i Faith? 
Well, I got married in 1972 to a wonderful lady, and we'll be celebrating 40 years this June the 23rd, but uh, we were married in 1972. By 1975, uh, I was working as the editor of a small-town newspaper in Dundas, Ontario, just outside of uh, Hamilton, you know, about 40 miles down the road from Toronto would be a better description for a lot of Americans. As the editor of that paper, it was actually a satellite and there were five or six papers in the area that were owned by the same company. And they would, every Tuesday, I would go out there and set the uh, type. It was still back in those days. You set, had to set every piece of type and uh, everything else like that each, each time around. But anyway, I, I had taken the job as the editor of a small-town newspaper on purpose. I got out of radio because I had already been in it for about 12 years, and I wanted to see if there was anything else that I might like to do before I really committed myself during my working days to broadcasting. I didn't go very far. I, I took the job with the, with the newspaper. I was still doing some TV, some uh, play-by-play hockey games and that sort of thing. But I took the job, and one of those jobs was to do the editorial page completely. I had to write the editorial. And I used my father, who is a very good, or was a very good artist, he would do the cartoons for the editorial page, and I would write the, the full-page editorial. This was back in 1975, and Akbas Javid mentioned the glorious name of Baha'u'llah to me. Here's exactly how it happened. I used two words to describe it, and those words are Baha'u'llah does. It was April of 1975. Those words came out of my mouth the instant that Akbas Javid asked my secretary, who is it that you said runs the Dundas Star? To which I immediately, immediately, I leaned back on my chair, I looked around the corner of the divider, and I, I stated in a rather matter-of-fact way, Baha'u'llah does. One day previous to that, Warren, declaration back in April of 1975, I was sitting at the editor's desk in the uh, Dundas Star when Akas Javid, she sallied into the editorial office. It was during a freak snowstorm in the month of uh, April, and she announced that she was a Baha'i and that she would like to come and get some publicity for the Baha'i faith. And of course, I said, well, what is the Baha'i faith? So I inquired, and she responded in a, a really strange accented voice that uh, the basic principle of the Baha'i faith is world unity, and that the founder of the faith was Baha'u'llah. And with that, she sort of swept out of the room, proclaiming that her husband, whose name was Mirza, Mirza Javid, who was a doctor, was waiting to take her to a swimming lesson. But as she left, she said to me, she said, is it okay if I come back and tell you more? Uh, well, I don't know whether she really heard my positive response or not, but I, I do know that I had a feeling that it wasn't going to be very long before I was going to see this lady back in my office again. And that's what it was. It was, very, it was the next day, and I, I was sitting working at my desk, and I hear the door open, and a, a rather cheery good afternoon expressed to my secretary, and it was that same strange accented person from the day before. So here I am. I'm sitting behind the divider that separates me from the secretary, and I felt a little bit of a, a strange chill at that moment, and about two seconds later... I heard uh, the, the woman ask, who is it that you said runs the Dundas Star? And she'd obviously forgotten my name. Well, in, in less than the blink of an eye, I found myself leaning back on my chair. I looked around the, the, the corner of the divider, and I proclaimed, Baha'u'llah does. And her eyes got really huge, like saucers, and she once again swept into my office. And in one hand, she had some pamphlets, and the other, she had a book, which I took from her. And I opened that book up. It was a copy of uh, Baha'i World Faith. And I opened up towards the back, so I know now, of course, today that I was reading from Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, and I started to read. 
And after reading less than two sentences, I felt like an electric shock was going up and down my spine. It was like ding, 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 ding. It was, it was incredible. It was awesome. I knew I was a Baha'i, and I began to haunt the Javid house day and night, and my thirst for the writings let me go, you know, day and day and day after day without sleeping, and my love for Baha'u'llah will always be the true desire of my heart, and that lady brought it to me. So that's how I became a Baha'u'llah. That's a very interesting story because, first of all, people can very, very rarely are able to pronounce the name of Baha'u'llah after just hearing it one time. Well, I was a broadcaster, so perhaps I had a, a leg up. <laughs> so you immediately were attracted to the message of Baha'u'llah? Yes. What was your thinking of religion before you ran into the Baha'i faith? I was always interested in religion. I'm one of those people who, uh, I, I describe it as I'm, I'm a bit of a leech. If somebody has something that I can learn, I, I'm, I'm going to bug them until I, <laughs> until I get all the answers to my questions and what have you. When I was eight, nine years old, I'd, be, I'd have a, you know, a flashlight reading at night and stuff like this. And my father would throw shoes at me and say, turn that, turn that flashlight, I would go to sleep type of thing. And I was, I was reading the Bible. I was interested in the stories and the parables and the allegories and all of the different things that were in there. They were like magic to me. So, yeah, I was interested. So you, you were ready to commit yourself to the Baha'i faith as practically yes. after, right after you heard it. Yes, I was. It took me two months to come out of the closet because, you know, you go through those things about, uh, well, what's going to happen, what's my family going to do, and so on and so forth. But absolutely, I, I knew I was going to be a Baha'i the instant I heard the name of Baha'u'llah. And what was your family's reaction? It actually wasn't as dire as I thought that it might be. Because when you explain to people, I mean, the, the basic concepts of the Baha'i faith, who can really argue against them? If, I, if you say to somebody, well, you know, the principles of Baha'i faith include spiritual solutions for economic problems or an auxiliary language, uh, international parliament, uh, the oneness of the world of humanity... Uh, independent investigation of truth. Foundation of all religions is one. There's only one God. Uh, religion must be the source of unity, or science and religion must be in harmony. Universal peace, universal education. When you speak of those kinds of things, nobody can kick them around, and you know it's it's pretty hard. So they saw these basic concepts of the Baha'i faith, and they thought, well, if he can live by those, more power to him. What about your wife? You were married at the time. Oh, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> Her last name is Tote, T-O-T-E. It's Hungarian. Actually, it has to do with the, the gypsy background. She is old Hungarian, and it scared the bejeebers out of her. As soon as I became a Baha'i, I started having Baha'i meetings in, in our home, Baha'i firesides, as we call them. We invite people to have a cup of tea with us. The word fireside is used because when the faith began back in the 1850s, 1844 exactly, but people would sit around the fire at night and discuss things of political and religious nature. So they were called firesides, and it, and it has stuck. So I started doing firesides in our home. And when I did my firesides... Uh, my dear wife would run to her mother's house a few miles away. And after it was over, I would phone and say it's done, and she would come home. She wasn't opposed to it or anything else like that, but she just was not in a position where she was ready to do too much. However, my dear wife became pregnant, and as it progressed, she would have backaches. So I said to, I said to her, 
Nancy has said, Howby, I'll give you back rub every day. But each day as I'm rubbing your back, if you would let me explain just one of the principles of the Baha'i faith, why I'm happy being a Baha'i. So you could say she pretty well had it rubbed into her. <laughs> it, was, it was so nice to do because uh, it, it made me feel closer because there's nothing more you want to do than share something that you find, this great treasure, no matter what it might be, spiritual or physical, and you want to share it with the, the person who is uh, your, hopefully your consort through all the worlds of God. So it was beautiful. But here's, here's an example of one of the reasons that she drew closer to the faith. I always say to people, when you have a fireside and people don't show up, in other words, you invite them for whatever reason they can't come or they didn't know how to say no. Well, what I did when I invited people, I went and picked them up. And I would always say that, you know, 100% of the people you go and pick up show up at the fireside. <laughs> well, one day, there was only one, one gentleman who was to be coming to the fireside. Others might be coming, but I only had, had an opportunity to invite this one. And, and he was happy. He wanted to come and everything else like that. But at the last moment, he couldn't come. And I knew he wasn't just pulling my leg because he'd been phoning me and asking me questions about the Baha'i faith. So that was fine. So I, I said to my wife, you know, you don't have to go to your, your mother's house because my person from the fireside can't come. I said, however, I'm going to sit down and, and, and say some prayers. And uh, I'll read a couple of prayers if that's okay. So she said that was okay. And I sat down and I said a few prayers and I asked uh, Baha'u'llah, you know, to, to help me. A few minutes later, there's a knock on my door. <laughs> my wife answers the door, not me. She answers the door, and there's a gentleman standing there. And the gentleman standing there says, I don't know why I'm knocking on your door, but something told me to come and knock on it. Try that on for some <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after that, my dear spiritual mother, Akbas Javid, called my dear wife one day and invited her to go to her fireside. She did. And she thought she was going to be going into the battleground, really, you know, that these people are going to try and convert her and all of this sort of stuff, and it didn't happen. There was no mention of the Baha'i faith. Sat around for several hours just getting to know each other better. And so the ways that you approach things, it, you can't force it down somebody's throat. Believe you me, I tried. When I first became a Baha'i, I wanted to stand on the rooftops and just holler at people and say, get over here, have a look at this, this is magnificent, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And you do things because you don't know. I mean, I certainly wouldn't do some of the things that I did back in those days. I'm a little bit more proficient, but I'm still as audacious. So you, you wanted to try editing a, a newspaper. I'm kind of surprised that somebody put you in charge of a whole editorial page on your first gig in the newspaper business. Well, I had moved into the newsroom from the uh, DJ's desk, so to speak, for several years. So the people that hired me already knew that I had a handle on news, how to handle it, where to handle it, how to ask the questions. And it wasn't as big a step that it would be for you know the average person. But you ultimately went back to broadcasting. Why was that? I did. I, I realized that that's where I was happiest. There were just no two ways about it didn't like the idea of getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, as I did for 10 years, but, I mean, that's all part and parcel of uh, the journeyman uh, in that particular business. And what was it about broadcasting that you missed that you really wanted to get back into? 
in those days, it probably had a little bit of ego. It's kind of nice. You, you know, you go places and you do things that other people don't get an opportunity to do. I can get, I mean, even if there was just something going on on the street where they had a police line or a barricade where everybody else held back, well, I've got my press pass. I can go take a look and see what's going on. I, I liked that, to be quite honest. Uh, my ideas of what id and ego are, what they were when I first became a Baha'i and what 20 years after that and now 35 years uh, after that have changed considerably. I hope I've matured. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a little devil. In <laughs> they don't call me darling for nothing. You know? <laughs> as a matter of fact, Warren, when I became a Baha'i, one of the things that I did as a news director, I would wheedle news out of people by telling them jokes. And I knew a lot of jokes that I would want to stuff my mouth with soap for today. <laughs> and so I would phone up different politicians, get them laughing, you know, and, uh, like, like friends, and then sneak in the question, so to speak. And when I became a Baha'i, I said to myself, holy mackerel, I'm going to lose most of my contacts because they expect such and such from me. Guess what? Just the opposite was true. I was a good newsman. I had good contacts, but I doubled my contacts when I quit the crap and just stuck with the original script, and people started to see that. They saw I wasn't the jester or anything else like that anymore, and that I was serious about what I was doing, and it actually worked out better. And did you try TV? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I did TV, but uh, as they say, I have a better face for radio. <laughs> I did TV, but it wasn't a lot of TV in front of the screen, except for a couple of years. But I enjoyed doing the play-by-play -play hockey, for example. That way you're, you're there and your voice is there, but they don't have to look at what I see in the mirror. <laughs> so why didn't you go into politics after high school? Well, one of the things in the Baha'i faith I found most interesting, and I smiled when it happened. Uh, as Baha'is, we don't get involved in party politics. If it's local politics, for example, uh, where parties are not involved. Uh, I, technically, a Baha'i could run to be, you know, mayor of a small town or something like that. But as far as politics with party aspects to it, we don't. And here's why. If a person says that they are a, we'll use American terms, a Republican, that means that they prefer the Republicans over the Democrats. Or if they say they're a Democrat, they prefer the Democrats and their policies over the and, and to us, that's, even, in, even in that respect, is a form of prejudice. And one of the principles of the Baha'i faith is the elimination of all forms of prejudice, whether it's racial or linguistic or whatever. Any form of prejudice, we want to see them abolished. So if, if politics is prejudice, it's something that we'll leave to the politicians and so on, and we'll just do our part. I mean, that, it doesn't mean because we as Baha'is don't get involved in politics, that we don't vote, of course we do. Well, in fact, as a matter of fact, we are instructed that we should obey our government. And if the government says, uh, for example, in Australia, that you have to vote, then you have to vote. That, that's actually a law in Australia. The government says that any uh, person who is uh, living in Australia and has the uh, capacity to do so should vote. Here in Canada, it's a choice whether one uh, goes and votes or not, but uh, individually, we do vote. We just don't announce to anybody who we're going to vote for or say that we want so-and-so to win. We keep it to ourselves. Well, I guess the question then is, how soon after high school did you become a Baha'i? Well, 
I was finished high school before my 16th birthday, and I became a Baha'i when I was 26, so 10 years. Uh huh. So during that time, why did you choose broadcasting over politics before running into the Baha'i faith? Um, I'm interested in knowing the answer to that myself to this day. I really can't answer that one. I've asked it to myself a dozen times over the years. I'm happy that I did what I did, and maybe it was in preparation for finding the Baha'i faith. Look how fast I, I recognized it. So how would you say the Baha'i faith changed your direction when you found it? I think it gave me those things that I needed to prevent me from becoming what a lot of people in broadcasting in those days were. And that was egotistical son of a... <laughs> There's still a lot of people in the, in the broadcasting business today who have uh, ego issues. And we, we, I, I am so happy that I came across the Baha'i faith because... I certainly would have gone down that path. I guarantee you I would have continued along that path. And I like, that. I, I like the person that I am today. Uh, I, I know that I have taken opportunities to grow in ways that I couldn't possibly without the, the guiding hand of, uh, of God. So you've retired from broadcasting? I have. But when I say retired, I'm, I'm not at it as a nine-to-five. I am a consultant, and I have been so now for a dozen years, and I enjoy getting involved, helping other people in, in various aspects, and I can pick and choose what I do and when I do it, and I still do a, a lot of different things. I am in the present moment, I am about a third of the way recording a book entitled The Second Coming, so I get to use my voice there. I have just recently put a video up on YouTube that anybody can have a look at. It's called The Tablet of Carmel. If you just Google Tablet of Carmel and my name, Glenn, with two N's, Glenn Darling, it'll, it'll come up. So, yes, I, I keep my hand in it. I still try to attend various functions that go on on a yearly basis in that, but it's not a day-to-day routine for me. So tell me about your audio book, The Second Coming. I have a lovely, lovely friend in Washington State. Her name is Zabina Van Ness. She had mentioned that she had a friend... Uh, by the name of uh, Lisa Mori in the state of Florida, who was looking for a voice to go along with a book on the second coming of Christ that had been already published. It was in the paperback form, 120 pages long, and that they were putting it on the Internet and different things like this, but they'd also like, to, like it to come out as an e-book and were looking for a voice. So I made contact with Lisa, and we've started putting it together. I recorded the first 10 chapters, and she is doing those things that are necessary for uh, us to sound good and to, and to look good. So you recorded a recitation of the Tablet of Carmel. Can you explain to folks what the Tablet of Carmel is? There are three documents that are, uh, according to the Guardian of the Baha'i Faith, are the corner pins of uh, our religion. And this one is the shortest. It's, you know, it's only a, a few pages long, really. But what the Tablet of Carmel is, is it's a discussion between God and Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, the mountain of God, as mentioned too, of course, in a number of places in, in the Bible, and references to it, uh, that it would bloom and so on and so forth, and it would be a special place in the, in the future. And Mount Carmel is actually in the city of Haifa, 
Israel, in northern Israel, about 20 miles from the Lebanese border. And the Baha'is have built from the top of Mount Carmel all the way down to the Avenue of Kings in the town of Haifa, which is almost a mile long, a series of wonderful, wonderful gardens, 19 of them, in the midst of it, not in the very middle of it, but uh, three-quarters of the way up those wonderful gardens that are there is the Shrine of the Bab, which, of course, is a central place of worship for Baha'is, and it is a, a wonderful place for people to visit. We have hundreds of thousands of people who go to the Shrine of the Bab, as it's referred to on Haifa, and that's on Mount Carmel, the mountain of God. And the Tablet of Carmel is a direct reference to that spot and its future use in the world. Uh, people will circumambulate around this wonderful spot for thousands of years to come. You mentioned the, the Shrine of the Bab, which is a shrine for the central figure of the Baha'i faith, the Bab. Yes. Can you yes. explain to folks who the Bab was? The majority of the people in the United States come from a Christian background, so if I say that the Bob was to Baha'u'llah what John the Baptist was to Christ, it would probably make a lot of sense. It was one who came foretelling the imminent arrival of a great messenger of God, a great manifestation of God, a voice from God. Um, the difference between John the Baptist and the Bob is that the Bob was a manifestation of God in the same way as Abraham or Moses, Buddha, Krishna, Zoroaster, Christ, Muhammad. And of course, we Baha'is refer to the twin manifestations talked about in all of the great religious books, and they are the Bab and Baha'u'llah. So the Bab was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah. And as such, as a manifestation of God, he too went through all of the same kinds of heartache and uh, hardship that all of the manifestations of God have faced, because for the most part, people are not ready to listen to what they have to say, or they're still listening to blind imitation. So when the Bob declared his mission on the 23rd of May in the year 1844, there were those few ears who were willing to hear and eyes who were willing to see, and from a very small and humble beginning, hundreds and then thousands of people began to listen to the message that the Bob brought forward, and they be started to become what they were called in those days as Bobbies. And, of course, the ruling class at that time was not very happy with what was happening, and, of course, the ecclesiastical folks were not very happy, and so they ganged up against them, as you might say, and... Uh, started trying to eliminate the Bobbies through any means that they could, throwing them into prison, and then they got worse and worse and worse, and they started actually killing uh, those who had become members of the Bobby religion in some horrendous ways. Uh, but that happens, no doubt, in, I'm sure, in, in the time of every great manifestation of God when they come, there are those whose hearts are so on fire, they are happy to give their lives at that flame not be put out. In fact, every time a manifestation of God comes and someone gives their life for it, it's fanning the flame. It's not putting out the fire. So do you have any thoughts of what projects you want to do uh, that uh, you haven't done yet? Well, there's so many things. I just, you know, Baha'u'llah says when a person becomes a Baha'i, it's like entering a university from which you can never graduate. And boy, do I believe that. I have spent so much time trying to 
do so many things for so many people that the world is in a, in a season of hurt. There's no doubt about it. People are starving. People are being set upon. People are being pushed to do things they can't do. It's a rough time. There is no doubt about that. It's a time of change. But Baha'u'llah says, this is the day upon which night shall not return. And so when I look and I see how the Baha'i faith has grown, it is the fastest growing religion in the world. It is the second widest spread religion in the world. And I look at what we are doing in the area, say, of social and economic development. There are Baha'is in every country who are trying to be of service to the people in those local areas and to introduce them, of course, to the Baha'i faith. So that's what I want to do. I would love to be able to travel the world and just be of service where, they, where, where I can and share the message of Baha'u'llah. I have a wonderful friend, Maro Baruch, and his dear wife, Polly, and they have been in Haiti for 35 years, for example. I, I could never do what Moro does and, and what his dear wife does. I, I, I wish I could, but I couldn't honestly say that I could do that. And there are people in, in the heart of Africa who are doing the same thing. And they do it, why? Because it's, it's for the love of God. But I have a voice that I can use. I can go and do interviews with people quite easily. I can go and approach people in both radio and television and in uh, uh, newspaper areas around the world and hopefully get a few words into the paper so that people hear the name of the Baha'i faith or the word Baha'u'llah. Maybe they'll Google it and that would make me uh, happy very, very much. So those areas are easier for me and I will pursue those. The tough ones are keeping my mouth shut and knowing when not to say something. I've had to learn that over 35 years. I still haven't learned it, though, Warren. I'm, I'm forever opening my mouth the wrong, <laughs> the wrong time, but you know what I mean. Well, I'm glad you opened it for the last yeah. 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have so many things in the Baha'i Faith that are worth telling people about. May I just mention a few of them? Yes, please. Okay, Baha'u'llah says it's incumbent to recognize the manifestation of God in the day and age in which he comes. Now, the reason for that is quite simple. If a person goes to school, and they are in grade three, and they finish all the lessons in, in grade three, what is the next step for them? Grade four. Grade four. You don't stay in grade three, stay in grade three, stay in grade three. You move on to grade four, and when you move from three into four, you don't hate the teacher from grade three, you love that teacher for everything that they gave you, and now you move up to the next set of lessons, which are harder, and they are more rewarding. And as you grow, you get that opportunity. And that same thing happens with religion. Baha'u'llah says religion is progressive. So from the time of Abraham and Moses and Buddha and Krishna and so on in, into this day and age when we get to the Bab and Baha'u'llah, there will be more in the future. Whenever man has got his head down almost on the floor or, the, or, or on the ground and in the mud, that's when a great manifestation of God comes. And the first thing they do is to reaffirm those messengers who came before them and, of course, also indicate what will come in the future, give the clues. For example, the Bible is full of clues of the coming of Baha'u'llah. You'll find 173 different places, I'm sure there's more than that, where it mentions the name of Baha'u'llah in the, in, in the Bible. People say, what do you mean it's in the Bible? Well, for example, in Isaiah, it says, and behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel came into the house by way of the gate. If you look at that, it just, you know, it looks like a simple sentence. And behold, the glory of the Lord. The word Baha'u'llah in English means 
the glory of God or the glory of the Lord. And behold, the glory of the Lord came into the house. What house? Well, Jesus said it. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. How did he come? By way of the gate. Guess what the name Bob, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, translate to in English? Gate. And so the glory of the Lord, Baha'u'llah, came into the house by way of the gate. You see, it's right there. It's in the Bible. And you'll find 170 plus other places in the Bible where it is there. So, why is it incumbent to recognize the manifestation of God in the day and age in which it comes? Because that's the progressiveness of nature. You don't stay in grade three, stay in grade three, stay in grade three. You move on to grade four. Now, also, one of the things that I was particularly loving when I first became a Baha'i was Baha'u'llah says the beauty of the next world is such that were you to glimpse it for a fraction of a second, you would instantly want to be there. That's how beautiful it is. And I thought, oh, thank God, I don't have to sit on a cloud with a pair of wings <laughs> in, a, you know, in a box of Philadelphia cream cheeses they do today uh, by being a Baha'i. Baha'u'llah indicates that the worlds of God are more numerous than the grains of sand on a beach. Put that one in your pipe and smoke it. Can you imagine if you were standing on a beach and you reach down, you scoop up two handfuls of sand and you let it run through your fingers, that the worlds of God are more numerous than all the grains of sand on that, on that particular beach? And its beauty is such that you would want to be there instantly? Of course, that's why suicide is verboten in the Baha'i faith. You don't get the, you know, you don't get the luxury of a shortcut just because you know what's, what's going to be coming up. Another thing that interested me really, Warren, was there are so many false prophets. It doesn't matter what religion you come from. Everybody wants to tell you that there are false prophets. And there are. I'm sure that there are. I mean, I know people who have not necessarily claimed to be, you know, a Jesus, but lots of people who say that they are a Hitler or, you know, one of these people who was well known in the past. But God only speaks to mankind through his manifestations. The word comes from God through his spokespiece, which is the manifestation, to mankind. But it also returns the same way. It should go from man through the manifestation and to God. It's a, it's a two-way street. It's not just a one-way street. And I loved that very, very much because if a person doesn't claim that they're a manifestation of God, I don't have to worry about that. You know, they can, they can be the biggest power in the world if they want. What I want is this, I want to spiritually be awake and spiritually be alert. Baha'u'llah tells us that ere the passing of a thousand years, should anyone claim to be a manifestation of God, he verily is a liar. So from the time of 1844, when the Baha'i faith began, until 2844, anybody who claims to be a manifestation of God is not. But after that, just like it always has been, Somewhere between 500 and 1,500 or 2,000 years. That's how often the manifestations of God come until the present era. But it speaks about that, the twin tr trumpet blasts in, the, in all of the great religious books. But at, at least we have, we have a, a map that tells us that there are certain things that will and will not happen. And in the past, 2,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 years, our Jewish brothers and sisters, for example, waiting for the coming of their Messiah, we have today people who call themselves Jews for Jesus, for example, and they have accepted Christianity. So perhaps some of the Jewish people will investigate the Baha'i faith. I mean, they've got it sitting right in their, in their lap. The world center of the Baha'i faith is in Haifa, Israel. And some of my best friends uh, who are of the, uh, of the Jewish faith, they love the Baha'is. You go to Haifa and you see the Arabs and the Jews and the Baha'is all functioning together. It's a wonderful thing to say.
you know, as mankind gets better and gets bigger and goes on and on and on, we grow through various stages. And there are two things Baha'u'llah says that mankind eventually cannot know. And this pleased me very much. One of the things is you can't ever know the reality of God because God is infinite and we humans are finite and a finite cannot comprehend an infinite. And the other one is the reality of the next world. We cannot know it because there are no words in any language to describe it. It is a world of light, a pure world of light, but it is not describable to a human being. And in the same way that as a baby in the womb, when my child was being born, my first son, Daniel, I would put my hands on my wife's belly and I would feel his hand and I would feel his, his foot and I would talk to him and I would say prayers and various things. Now, I could tell him all about this world, but he couldn't understand it. Why not? Because he's not here. He has nothing to use. Here, we use sensory perceptions, touch, taste, smell, and so on. He doesn't have any of those in the womb. They're, they're in the preparation stages. So no matter what I tell him, even though he's in this world, he doesn't know he's in this world. And he couldn't understand what's in this world because he can't use yet those wonderful gifts that God gives for this stage of our development. So not being able to know the reality of the next world, I like that very much too. But I know that its beauty is such that were I to glimpse it for a fraction of a second, I would instantly want to be there. Another thing that I like is I like to be of service to people. Some people say, what do you do? And I said, well, I try to be a servant to the servants of God. And the best way that I can do that is, in this day and age, Baha'u'llah says, it is incumbent that we put our brother or sister before ourselves. His Holiness, the Lord Jesus Christ, taught us what? Love ye one another. And that was beautiful. But Baha'u'llah says, but each coming of a new manifestation of God, something new is given to people, and more is expected for this newness that they have been given. Well, in this day and age, it means that I not only have to love my neighbor, but I have to put my brother or sister, man or woman, before myself. So I, I look forward to every day with a, a wonderful heart. I am happy for people in my life. I am absolutely ecstatic that I get opportunities to talk to people, that they will hear a little bit about the Baha'i faith, simply because my new friend, Warren Modest Gillette, has asked me to mention a few words about the Baha'i faith. Well, I'm so glad that I did. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk for hours. I think you know that. <laughs> well, this has been really one pleasurable hour. And Glenn, I want to thank you so much for you telling your story and for sharing with us your thoughts and feelings about the Baha'i faith. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Could I squeeze a prayer in before we go? Sure, go ahead. Okay. All that I beg of thee, O oh my God, is to enable me, ere my soul departeth from my body, to attain thy good pleasure. Even were it granted to me for a moment tinier than the infinitesimal fraction of a mustard seed. For if it departeth while thou art pleased with me, then... I shall be free from every concern or anxiety. But if it abandoneth me, while thou art displeased with me, then even had I wrought every good deed, none would be to any avail. And had I earned every honor and glory, none would serve to exalt me. Those are the words of the Bob from a book called Selections of the Writings of the Bob on page 187. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, and God bless, Glenn. Create a nice day. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Glenn Darling, a Baha'i from Canada who has been in the broadcasting business for many years. 
You can hear his wonderful voice on YouTube reciting Baha'u'llah's work, The Tablet of Carmel. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
hurt me now. Nothing can ever hurt me now. Nothing can ever hurt me. And gladden my spirit, my spirit, my spirit. Oh God, refresh and gladden my spirit, my spirit, my spirit. Purify my heart. My powers. I lay all my affairs in Thy hand. Oh God, Thou art my guide and my refuge. My refuge. My refuge. Oh God, Thou art my guide and my refuge. Sorrowful and grieved, I will be a happy and joyful being. I will no longer be full of anxiety. No, will I let trouble harass me?
sorrowful and grieve I will be a happy and a joyful being I will no longer be full of anxiety nor will I let trouble harass me This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.